Chasing Leviathan is a podcast about pursuing truth, one big question at a time through the discipline of listening. Truth is too big to tame. But if we pay close attention, we might get the chance to glimpse something truly magnificent. So please join me in this pursuit, one week at a time. Hello and welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm here with Dr. Kristen Rundle, professor at the Melbourne Law School. And we are talking today about revisiting the rule of law, uh, her new book coming out. And uh, really excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Rundle. Thank you, PJ. It's a pleasure. So uh, talk to me, first of all, why this book? I think you mentioned at the beginning, you've been thinking about this stuff for 20 years. Why this pursuit? Why this uh, obsession with this question? Well... Why this book is probably the the best question to answer here, PJ. There is a new series that's um, being created by Cambridge University Press, and it's called the Elements Series. And my understanding of it is that uh, the publisher is seeking contributions from scholars in particular fields to write small, accessible works on key ideas within a whole range of disciplines, right? So within there, there's all these sub-series and sub-sub-series and so forth. But within the philosophy of law series, you can imagine the kinds of ideas that would be distributed. You know, you might have justice, you might have sovereignty, you might have constitutions or something like that. I was asked to write the rule of law one. And initially, I, you know, it was filled with dread (laughs) because this is an idea that circulates so much in legal thought in fact, often in a way, and we can come back to this, which um, fails to recognise its significance in political thought as well as legal thought. And I'm a law teacher, so I'm most familiar with circulation in legal thought. It, is, it circulates so much that it is a genuinely overused and under-understood idea. And I had gotten to a point as a teacher Um, which I did not admire, which was that when a student would say to me something like, oh, I want to write an essay about the rule of law or I I want to talk more about the rule of law, my face would fall and and my my voice inside my head would say, do you have to? So I thought, well, this is not a good look. This is not a good look, even if they don't know that's going on in my head. It's not a good look because... I am meant to be among the custodians of the fate of this idea. Mm. I've thought about it for a long time. So why has it become so tricky to work with? Um, And that's why I accepted the invitation was, okay, how can I go about being an observer of the work being done and the uses of this idea? Not to nail my own colours to any particular mask. It wasn't about being, it's not about arguing, I've solved it for you, here's my way of theorising these things. But to step back from the usual polemics of academia and to just observe what's going on in the hope that I could provide what I would affectionately describe this as, as a lonely planet to theoretical engagement (laughs) with this idea. So I wanted to provide something of a roadmap to newcomers or, or those who are coming back to it 
as to how to start interpreting what they read and hear, giving them tools to navigate this. So that's why I took it on. I felt that I, I'm, you know, I call myself mid-career more or less, and I was at a juncture in my own intellectual development where I thought I could offer that, but also that it would do me good too, because the net effect of it has been that I'm no longer frightened of this idea and um, I'm, I'm ready to engage with it because I'm ready to see what's going on and how other people engage with it. So that's why I did it. It was a, a disciplinary activity for myself as well as to help others to work um, knowingly um, and responsibly with what can be an overused and under-understood idea. Thank you. Uh you mentioned earlier one of the reasons you wrote the book is uh, a frustration with plucking. Can you uh, explain that concept? Because I liked uh, that reason in particular. Maybe it's just the strength of the metaphor, but I really loved how uh, you described that. Okay, well, what you find, PJ, when you come across the rule of law turning up in some kind of publication. It's either not explained at all in the sense that it's just used there as a very heavily loaded term that sounds like a good thing and it just, you know, gets on with its merry travels. But for most students of the idea, there's an immediate turn to some or other what I call vignette. So there's a little um, statement of the rule of law that is often held out as a theory of it or a definition of it. And these, you know, the most used ones tend to be from Locke and Hayek and A.V. Dicey and maybe some from Joseph Raz. In my text, I also use one from Jeremy Waldron. But they are little nuggety statements that um, we turn to to say the rule of law is, right? It gives you your answer to that question. And what was bothering me about that, and again, this comes from also being a law teacher and legal materials, including, you know, court judgments, often, you know, reach for the rule of law and reach for one of these, these little nuggets or vignettes. I was concerned that we were being encouraged to engage with this idea via these vehicles of these little nuggets without recognising they were plucked out of something and any academic knows that every academic sits down to do their work with a particular agenda or a project in mind. You know, we don't, like, we, we don't just describe things without having reasons for wanting to do so or invent things without having reasons for wanting to do so. So I was concerned that, that readers um, were more informed about the context from which these little vignettes are plucked. And that once that is understood, you realise you are rarely, if ever, in possession of a definition that is generalisable to all places and all times. They are historically situated. They are culturally situated. Um, we have to pay very, very close attention to the specific terms of them. So without, and you might have noticed in the, in the work, PJ, that I, I make a distinction between theories of and theoretical engagements with, mm. right? And it could be that, that distinction is meant to break down, but there are some works that either declare themselves as saying, I'm going to do a theory of the rule of law, but that's actually really rare. What is much more common is that the idea comes into somebody's thought processes and, and writing objectives and so forth, and then they give it some meaning in that context, but it is contextual. So that was my primary concern, was to position these vignettes or these nuggets back in the context from which they have been plucked so that we could see or notice 
much more clearly, look at the bundle of terms. Like, okay, they're talking about rules or they're talking about courts or they're talking about certain things. So there must be reasons why these things are clustered together, but you're not going to get any illumination about those reasons just from the, the vignette that's been plucked on its own. Right. Um, and I mean, that goes back to even what we were talking about earlier about um, straw men. And that's how you get these very short, condensed um, kind of carrying your pocket definitions that just aren't very useful. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think be, before we go any further, I'd love to talk a little bit about what you do in the book um, about uh, rule of law as a legal concept and as a political concept and how those mm -hmm. two are tied together, but also how they're distinct. Great, thank you. See, this was in the process of writing this, and it came quite late in the process, I guess. It became evident to me that it was fundamental to the contribution of this little book to make it clear that we here have an idea that straddles legal and political thought, right? It has both dimensions. Mm -hmm. And the reason that, I mean, it's an obvious point, the rule of law speaks to the idea that political power needs to be packaged and expressed in a particular, held packaged, expressed in a particular way, namely through law. But because legal thinkers have been at the forefront, I think, of developing our thinking around the rule of law and our understanding of its content for the last you know, 100 or 200 years, the lawyers have been dominant, right? And I think that's actually, they've got a lot to answer for. <laughs> and I say that, you know, so, you know how, how can you speak against your people in this way, Kristen? But um, they, they have a lot to answer for because what has gone on is that instead of moving in very carefully sta careful stages where we say, for example, okay, what is this idea? It's trying to tell us something about a particular way of organising political power and of wielding and exercising political power. It's almost like I find among legal thinkers that that fundamental understanding we're dealing with dual influences here is left quickly behind and we get on with its specifications. So we go on saying it needs publicly announced rules or it needs courts doing impartial things. Like we're, we're right away in um, the specification or operationalization of the idea. Mm. And I wanted to just say, slow down. Can we please remember we're talking about a demand on political power which requires that political power be framed, ex possessed, exercised through law, but that's telling us that both sides of the political relationship are in this game. You have those that govern and you have those that are governed. And what this political demand is asking is that each or both are mutually subordinate to the demands of the mm. law. So the officials in the rule of law order must be subordinate to the law. They are below the law, you know, they're not above it. And likewise, we the subjects must be complying with, going along with whatever you might, whichever description you like, the law. So there's this notion of, of mutual subordination to law is the political demand. And I wanted to put that out very, very clearly and to run that through because if we switch so quickly to saying, well, how would we operationalise this idea? You know, you need courts, you need this or whatever. Then we're having a different conversation. And it's an important conversation, but I feel that it, I have felt that it has neglected why are we having this right. conversation at all, which is we're trying to work out what a political demand is. And as I said, I think the legal thinkers have been dominant in moving us to those questions. 
um, and um, not always bringing us back to what are we trying to do here as a particular way of um, running political order. Absolutely. Um, and even as you talk here about the different political demands, uh, you know, this might be jumping a little bit, you know, I think we can come back to some ideas later. But I did want to ask you at some point about uh, the three different types of uh, personhoods or, or personages and how mm -hmm. that influences these demands. Um, and also just kind of, I think you just make this general critique um, that comes from contextualizing the idea of personhood that we say, we need the rule of law for us. And it's like, well, who's <laughs> us? Because for yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like it's like it's for property owners it's for uh white male property owners you know you start looking like mm -hmm. uh, depending on you know i'm obviously coming from an american context but you go through like these different historical periods and the us changes quite a bit so could you speak to that mm -hmm. idea of personhood and how that really uh is an an essential part of like this us that uh makes the rule of law possible yeah, no, this this is this PJ. I think you've 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 gone straight into my deepest motivation mm. for doing this. Is that um, I'm a bit of a bottom up kind of thinking, and I, I like to pay attention to what's going on with the people, right? And and I have noticed that a lot of um, theoretical work on the rule of law and and a lot of thinking about the rule of law generally um, presupposes the people who are going to either carry its burdens or benefit from its offerings. So you can have, let's just, the, the type of thing we've been saying, you know, the law should be in general rules and pre-announced and there should be courts or something like that. It's all very abstract and institutional and it's making demands on things, right? But, of course, this is all being carried by people. And I have found generally, because I'm particularly interested in what it means to be a subject of a legal order as opposed to something else, you know, why is it different for us to be in a constitutional system committed to the rule of law as opposed to other ways that we could be living? And I've found that so much of work in legal theory and in rule of law theory presupposes, like it, it implicates conceptions of people more than it articulates it. So I really wanted to push the people to the front and say, okay, who are the people of the rule of law? Because this thing is operating through conduct. So the conduct of those who govern us and our conduct as the governed is really at the heart of this particular enterprise. So let's do some excavating of the people. And so the, the terms I'm using, but they really are placeholders, PJ. It's not like, you know, you, you can use government governed, ruler ruled, you can use um, official subjects, but let's just do officials and subjects because I kind of see two groups of people there. Who are the officials of the rule of law? Who are, who are those that are conducting themselves through the constraints that we associate with this? And with a bit of excavation, it didn't take long to see that primarily we're often talking about judges. So the Paragon rule of law official is this impartial, institution-bound, fair-minded, um, constrained to their task, um, custodian of laws and legal order, right? So this becomes the kind of person. But on the other end, I was interested in who the subject was, and which is really where your question's coming on, personhood. Have we lost track of the idea that the rule of law is meant to be for us, 
It's meant to be, it, it came about as an experiment in realising that left to our own devices, I mean, it's like anything in political theory, left to our own devices, things would get a bit chaotic. We needed to find some framework within which we can coexist and which we can accept authority and so forth and so forth. But how much of rule of law thought in its modern incarnation has its eye on our experience of political order as its subjects? And the point that you made earlier, the example you gave, is that who is the rule of law for? Like, is it for those who need their private property rights secure? Is it for the security of foreign investment in developing countries in Africa? Is it for somebody who is in detention, who knows the conditions or the, so the lawful conditions of their detention? Who is it actually for? Now, I can't answer unequivocally, oh, it's for X, Y or Z. I just want people to start asking that question and to look at our discussions of the rule of law when it comes into our rhetoric, whether it be in general conversation or in political speech or in theoretical works that academics do. Who is the us? So who is this for? What are they thought to need or want? How is it doing what it is said to do for us? What is the benefit that accrues? Is it freedom? Is it um, protection of property? Like what exactly is it? But by asking the who question, my instinct was that rule of law thought gets a bit of a fresh pair of eyes, right? Because we are asking who is this for? And we're seeing, if we're looking at that person, we're seeing how particular engagements with the idea build very, very different conceptions, not only of who that person is, what capabilities they need to have, what stake they have in the rule of law, but what kinds of institutional apparatus and so forth are built from that person. Like, as we said, if it's the, the white property male needs a legal system presided over by courts that can um, enforce contractual rights, for example. The immigrant to detained in detention needs something very different. <laughs> um, so whatever it might well be, we're just to have people notice what's going on with the people and specifically what's going on in the relationship between them that either fosters or denigrates the personhood of that subject who is submitting to authority, right? We're talking about political power yeah. here, organised in a particular way. But how can we look at the, the, the way the person fares within the relationships that a rule of law order um, sets up? So it's very people-oriented noticing exercise. Yeah, and I, I love that kind of call to action. Excuse me. Um... It reminds me a lot. Um, I really appreciate uh, Wittgenstein for his clear sightedness. And one of his favorite critiques of philosophers is they have too narrow a range of examples, right? And uh -huh, like, yeah. even as you're talking about this, a lot of times, um, if you get outside the vignette, the vignettes, um, what you run into is you, it becomes very clear that they, they had a very narrow range of problems in mind. So even as you're talking yeah. about, uh, what are what is Locke solving? Locke is um, obsessed yeah. with property, right? I mean, I remember the yeah. the way that uh, my mind was blown to find that Thomas Jefferson had taken uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness directly from Locke, and but in Locke it was life, liberty, and the pursuit of property, and the, and yeah. then to see how you know you you'd think that they're actually moving away from property, but what I think they're doing is actually submerging it and hiding it. I mean, the, when you look at America and the cultural problems it has, like <laughs> it's, it's exact kind of blindness and not, 
and not looking at the context from things that are formed that uh, keeps us in the dark and ignorant in the first place. So I, I love this this idea. Can I just come, can I just come yeah. in on that point because it's, you can see you can see the connections right with my plucking objection yes. because for you know for us quaint Commonwealth people right um, I mean we've all got with the United States we have. In, we have a shared inheritance of institutional traditions yeah. that, you know, thank you, English, for those, <laughs> um, those institutions. But, but within um, the legal traditions in which I am culturally situated, yeah. um, Albert Venn Dicey, A.V. Dicey, the, the um, 19th century theorist of the English constitution, is the go-to man for the theory of the rule of law that you pluck and say, we need these things, Right. And like what you were saying about Locke and, um, and, and Jefferson, you, there's actually an enormous amount going on within the vignette that you've placed. Yes. It had its own historical reasons yeah. for being argued that way. You know, think about Hobbes. You know, Hobbes with his, like, terribly um, pessimistic idea of human nature, well, you know, we're talking about... We're in revolution and it's very ugly, right. you know. It's not, he's not having a good time when he's trying to work out what to do with humanity and its coexistence and its relationship to authority, right? And so this notion of, you know, a narrow range of problems to solve, these were the problems of their time, right? So they were, as we all are now, like situated in the problems we're trying to solve. And, like one of, and we can come back to this if you wish, but one of the things right now which demands for a rethinking of the idea of the rule of law is that we've got all of these technologies, yeah. for example, oh, yeah. um, and we live within structures of neoliberal government. And you can't just say, oh, yeah, the rule of law is a rule, or a rule of general enacted rules, blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, the rule of law as an idea is going to be out of the conversation very, very quickly if you think it is irretrievably tethered to those things, right? So you realise that as people have encountered this idea throughout history, they've had to work out with what te technologies they're working within, which could even be legislation as one of them. Now it might be automated decision-making or something like that, but that asks that you reconsider what the idea is about. And that's why, to go back to the point we said about the legal and political dimensions of the idea, that's why I was wanting to strip it back to that. Because if you go back to those basics, you are more able to open up a conversation about, well, what does the political demand of mutual subordination to law require in a society that's opted into automated decision-making, for example, right? And that's a long conversation, but you're more likely to have, I think, or I hope, you're more likely to have a productive and creative and open-minded conversation about what the rule of law requires in a period of automa in an era of automation than you are by saying, well, the rule of law means the rule of rules and um, access to courts and judges who are impartial. And it's like, but what if none of that's actually in the picture? Yeah. You know? What if that none is that at all? So everyone's always dealing with um, either in reality a narrow range of problems or the need to narrow the range of problems with which they're dealing in order to say anything at all, right? Because otherwise you can say nothing. You'll be here all the time, um, you know, trying to get your head around these things. But that is um, something that I'm trying, what I'm trying to do here by bringing in that, you know, repeating that political demand over and over again. We've got these political and legal demands coming together, but also bringing the people back in is to say, to sort of, you know, paraphrase um, your reference to Wittgenstein, um, there's, 
there's not just not enough examples. There's not enough people. Yeah. <laughs> or there's not enough differentiation in our thinking around the kinds of people that are in this rule of law game and differentiation in our thinking about who they are, what are they doing, what is asked of them, and so forth. So a little bit more nuance around um, who's in, what are they doing, what's asked of them, what is reciprocally asked of the other side of the political relationship, but also who's not in. And if they're not in, why not? So again, more noticing who the discussion is and where we started with the us, you know, it was, it's very helpful when you actually read some A.V. Dicey to see just how much he was speaking about the conditions of England and the order he was wanting to defend at the time. That was his us, right? But that you wouldn't know it if you just pluck the vignette. And you wouldn't know there was concerns about what are the French doing over there with the growth of administrative state? And, oh, goodness me, that's, you know, that's going to be a problem here um, because the executive's going to have power that we think should be vested in the courts and the parliaments or something like that. But it's very, very contextualised stuff. And part of that contextualization that I've wanted to amplify is who is in the picture. Yes. And I, I love that uh, there's, I think, two things that come out of that. One is it's very interesting to see the people who are uh, purposefully excluded. And then I think going mm. back to that narrow range of examples, the people who are unintentionally excluded, and it's just like, there's just these gaps in the system because they're not thinking about people. Um, I, yes, exactly. I don't remember who I was talking to, but they told me they were working with uh, a homeless person in poverty um, who had some, I don't think they were in trouble with the law, but they had some legal things they had to work through that included like different status and, um, job counseling and all this sort of thing. And of course, <laughs> I think it was particularly the legal proceedings were aimed at homelessness, but they gave them two appointments across the city from each other within, uh, with only an hour in between the two appointments. Yeah. And but like they just assumed like it, it's not it, it's not built in to that he doesn't have a car. So he had to bike <laughs> I, like literally and he was still yeah. late and he got in trouble for being late, even though he's yeah, working sure. way harder than, you know, <laughs> than I ever. I like I mean, and that's not, you know, and it, that's just something that is just taken for granted. It's like. Well, there's no negotiations about time. We're not going to, you know, you, you need to be here when you need to be here. And it's like, well, what about yeah. someone who doesn't have transportation? Like he literally cannot be there. Absolutely. And this is why my contribution, I mean, my contribution is well, because obviously that I wrote it. So that's quite obvious. But my contribution, I organized the material in a way that I thought would help people step through things. But my contribution in part three of the of the work, it's, which is called Revisiting the Rule of Law, um, does a lot of distilling the sorts of questions and thoughts that I've been having in my own work for, for a long time. So the provocations I've pushed there are ones that I've, I've developed myself. And one of those is the need to think more relationally yes. about the rule of law. It follows naturally um, once you've got the people back in the picture, right. right? So once you've got people there and you're saying, well, who are they, what are they doing, and what are they doing in relation to each other? So you're starting to notice what's going on there. And that the example you've just given is a perfect example of how terribly ordinary the circumstances can be in which 
a re- the political relationship of mutual subordination to law that is meant to be represented in a rule of law order can break down. Yeah. Why did you give guy appointments across town one hour and apart and not question whether he had transport? I worked as a judge's associate, which is um, in the US you call that um, a, you know, judge's clerk, right? And it, some of the things I saw um, included, um, we did a lot of judicial review, which meaning in the administrative law sense. So people um, appealing or challenging the legality of the government exercise of power with respect to them. I have seen situations where a 17-year-old um, Afghan refugee is alone in a courtroom and the government side, who are those detaining that person pending their immigration status being determined, have not provided an interpreter. And so I have, I have looked into the eyes of a 17-year-old Hazara Muslim who has fled the Taliban and know that everything in this situation is utterly uncompre- incomprehensible to them. And unsurprisingly, judge got irate and said, you know, get me a Farsi or whatever the interpreter was, you know, in half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is, now this is an example. I've also seen situations with um, deportation judicial reviews where a person is illiterate hmm. and that wasn't taken into account. So when asked, you know, have you read what um, the government is saying, etc., you know, angrily says, I can't read. And no one has accommodated that. Now, there is nothing minor about this at the level of the personhood point we were discussing before, right? right? And this is where you can talk all day about the sort of individual 8 or 10 or 12 prescriptions that make for the proper rule of law, but it's what's going on in the actual experiences of persons in their interface with the power of the state that is meant to be framed, possessed, exercised through, et cetera, answerable to law, this is the, these are the small spaces. And in a world, if I was in charge, <laughs> I would want scholars to think much more about these small spaces. I mean, you've obviously got an instinct for them, right, because the outrage of that situation is not just bad behaviour in a moral critique sense. Mm. It is a political failing, yeah. right? If you, this is a political failing. And I would wish to amplify the registers in which we um, criticise something like the appointments being across town one hour apart in, by someone who is fundamentally disadvantaged in the, and therefore acutely likely to be acutely stressed in their interaction once they've gotten across. Right town probably in a snowstorm right you know. well <laughs> maybe, i'm in florida maybe in a building but... where, there's no, where there's no elevator that they and they've and they've got crutches i mean who right, knows right? right like all of these little things are actually deeply material to this ideal that we ostensibly aspire to when we um hold ourselves out as being um an us that is embraced by the rule of law yeah absolutely um and so, you know, even as we talk about this abstraction, uh, kind of returning to the, the front of the book, you talk about one of the ways that rule of law is often defined is very negatively uh, as this, mm-hmm. you know, it, when you talk about abstraction, and I, I think that there is a healthy abstraction, right? We, we don't want yeah. officials who are above the law, right? Like that does have like <laughs> issues, 
But uh, we run into these abstractions with um, the rule of law is supposed to prevent tyranny. And you mm-hmm. and you you talk a little bit about how that makes it defined negatively, but we also miss how rule of law is defined positively. Can you speak to that distinction between the negative definition and the positive definition? Yes. So the negative idea is that we experience our liberty, you know, our the, the freedoms we hold within a political order in the spaces where law is not. So the rule of law is a way of being ruled where you are you only have those encroachments, note my language, like it's all loaded negatively. You only have those encroachments upon your liberties when those encroachments have been properly framed, possessed, exercised, answerable to law. So it's like that's your kind of compromise position. If we're going to live among each other in a political order in which there is, you know, centralised authority, et cetera, we should be free in the spaces where law is not and in the spaces where we are unfree or encroached upon, they must be appropriately framed through law. And that law should make it clear that we know exactly what government is asking of us and what it's going to do with us. Now, I'm sounding very Hayekian here. Like we have quite a strong notion of um, get off my back, basically, stay away. Stay away unless you do so in accordance with really quite tight prescriptions where everything must be very clear and rule bound and, and, and all the rest of it. So that's a negative framing. So it's an idea of, of us possessing liberty in the spaces where law isn't. It's presupposing, it's really, we've got some lovely um, continuities here, PJ, in how we're going from one point to another, because it's presupposing the presence of a person who wants this, right? Like this is what you want in life. You want to be, to be free is to be untouched. And I know in the United States, like traditions of libertarianism are very, very strong, yes. right? So maybe it's like, you know, damn right, that's what I want. You know? Don't tread on me. You know, yeah. I, have watched, I have watched Tiger King, you know, I, you know, it's also, you know, I say people, to people, you know, the reason to watch this is it is a study in American libertarianism. Yeah. Like it's a really, um, it is showing you something about, um, political order and ways of thinking about it, right? Ways of thinking about subjectivity, you know. Who knew that there could be such an um, analysis of Tiger King as a, as a study of subjectivity in political order? But this is, um, this is what is going on, right, is that um, it's presupposing a person who wants things to go that way. Now, what if a person needs certain supports um, to be provided non-privately in the sense not just from family or friends, in fact, they may not have family or friends, but what supports that the state can provide in order to participate fully in the political order? Can we have a conception of the rule of law that is all about being free whether in the spaces where law is not? And that's when you have to start flipping the idea and say, okay, if we tether ourselves to an overly negative conception of the rule of law, we're immediately setting up an opposition between a rule of law order that presupposes this free individual with with an interest in their liberty being left alone except in ways that were very, very clearly circumscribed by law, being rules, being bound, being announced beforehand. And there's all problems with that as well, right? What's being presupposed there? 
But what if we actually need, for example, social services that are, you know, we, we use the institutions of democracy and representative democracy to debate the need for public schools or public health care or um, employment, unemployment benefits or something like that. And we legislate these things and we use our tax system to um, redistribute the money and service of these things. Now, if you are all about the rule of law is there is the place, um, sorry, freedom is experienced in the place where law is not, then you can see how the logic of what I've just set up is just an anathema, right? You, you can't allow that. That is an encroachment on private individuals by the will of something beyond them being legislatures. So you end up in a debate about the rule of law versus a welfare state, for example, you know, where the rule of law is courts and private property and individuals and freedom in the space where law is not, etc., and that its opposition is something like active legislatures taxing you, redistributing it, and so forth. It's just too crude an opposition, right? And and these are these are the kinds of polemical oppositions that have gone on over time in debates about the rule of law and something that I think the intellectual left has a little bit to answer for is to throw the rule of law out in pursuit of welfare state ideals, as if we are dealing here with inherent compatibility. And not all people think that. If you're going to take a middle ground, it's like, how might we re-harness it? But a more positive conception of the rule of law, therefore, would be one concerned to, and I'm thinking aloud here, um, in terms of it recruiting those ideas about people we were discussing before, a positive conception of the rule of law would be one that was attentive to the quality of the relationship between those who participate in a political order, the governed, the govern, the governors, the, the um, subjects, the officials, and which saw fit to make that relationship of authority one that was favourable for all. And to, be, to make sense of why we would submit to the authority of the state because the state is attending to the circumstances of my needs as a person. Now, you could wrap that idea of needs up in the notion of my liberties or you could wrap it up in something else. But to think more positively about the rule of law, I think it's less about articulating exactly what that would entail, PJ, because, you know, I was just sort of playing with some ideas then, than of seeing the limitations and the directions of thought of an overly negative view. Because you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't want to throw the negative conception out because if you are somebody detained by a police officer um, or in immigration detention or by a security agency in some secret conditions or whatever, you absolutely need a, some negative conception of the rule of law telling yeah. you that government power should not be... Ex you, you want to know by what law am I detained? And I often say this to students, you know, it's always best said on a Monday, you know, you know when, you're, you, when you were hauled before the magistrate on, on um, this morning for your drunken and disorderly behaviour on Saturday night <laughs> and, and, the, and there you are to discuss um, the bail conditions or whatever it might be, please understand that that hearing is for your benefit. It is to demand of the police that they demonstrate under what authority did they just deprive your liberty, Right. That's what's going on. The person getting checked in that moment is the official. By what authority did you detain this person, right? And 
There's usually lots of crimes and criminal law that can provide that authority, but that's what's going on because it's a very common garden example of a basic rule of law precept that political authority has to be framed by exercise through answerable to law, and that's what's going on. Absolutely it's going on when what's at stake is the ultimate um, the ultimate experience that the rule of law is meant to protect, which is the possession of liberty and against its deprivation. So that's a very ordinary example of, of, of how that happens. So we don't want to throw out the negative conception. We just want to find ways to move away from suppositions of that negative conception that narrow the scope of what we can think and do with this idea of the rule of law. It was a little bit long-winded. No, that was great. I don't know if I answered you quite well enough there. No, I, that, was, that was perfect. Um, I want to continue that part of the discussion, but um, I want to kind of end there. So before we, we talk about uh, kind of those real, the reconceptualizing what uh, the rule of law might be, uh, and I loved that coda you had at the end, and um, I'd love to talk about that. But first, what are some of the most common entanglements you see? And I loved your use yeah. of, of, uh, of it being tangled because that, I see that all the time in these discussions where it's like, wait, why are these two ideas together? Oh, they just always just kind exactly. of, they're companions, right? And um, so I, I talked to us before <laughs> we, before we kind of, because I want to end on what would uh, revisiting it look like? Um, what, yeah, yeah, sure. what are those entanglements that often show up? Um, you mentioned constitutionalism. I'd love to hear that one first because yeah, I could sure. immediately see how those are in many ways synonymous to, to many people. Exactly. And this was, this really took me some thinking to work this one out, right? Because it was, so like, if you have a background in analytic philosophy, entanglement, of course, a big concern because um, analytic philosophers want to look at concepts in and of themselves and like to pull them away from other concepts that might be entangled with them so that we are having the engagement just with one idea and on its own terms. And that's not to deny that it travels together with others regularly. It's just to try and do the philosophical work of looking at something in its own right. That's just one way of understanding the notion of entanglement. But the more that I was looking at the range of ways in which people engage with the rule of law, the more I could see that these entanglements were multiple and that it helped to put some kind of organisational device around them. It's not exhaustive, but um, I don't know at what point, PJ, I got attached to the alliterative dimensions of using hard Cs for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> but they were, she tries to think of them all, um, contributions, companions, connections, conflations and controversies. So contributions was, well, what is it meant to, what is the rule of law thought to do for us, right? So let's ask those questions about what's, it, what's good about them, what it's good for. Um, connections, if I think I've got the right, the, um, yes, the next yeah. one, um, was to do with its persistent appearance in the context of discussing the work of courts. And this is something that I thought that the lawyers were particularly responsible for, that we seem to be able to move between um, one, a discussion of the rule of law and a discussion about what courts ought to be doing, almost as if we're like the two are completely um, unable to be disentangled, like they come together. Companions 
was my way of, of putting the notion that we see the rule of law travelling with other ideas a lot. But those ideas can change, right? The companionships can change over time. Right now, what I would say is that you see it pop up a lot with human rights. You see it pop up a lot with democracy. And you see it pop up a lot with um, security of private law guarantees, like contract or property and so forth. But what work is the rule of law doing in those companionships? And what work are the other companions doing to the rule of law was what I was also trying to get at. Like, for example, if we say that a frequent companionship is the rule of law in human rights, and it truly is. Like, if you go to the, the website of an organisation in the United Kingdom called the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law, it's... um. It's, it's created in, in honour of Tom Bingham, who was a very famous English judge and a famous commentator on the rule of law specifically, uh, a sort of person who came up with one of the substantive conceptions of the idea where you load in a lot of requirements like human rights observance or international law compliance and so forth. If you go to the Bingham Centre website and look at what programs they're doing, a great, great number of them, I won't say all, but a great number of them are human rights programs. And so what struck me was say, okay, so we have more or less an equivalence here, or at least a close companionship between saying seeking the cause of human rights observance and enforcement equals doing the work of the rule of law, right? Um, so that's the kind of companionship I was getting at. So trying to work out how do we disentangle, what, what influence are they having on each right. other and how are they travelling together? The next one is conflations which is the one that you picked up on, rule of law and constitutionalism. And I'll come back to that right now, but the fifth one is controversies, which we've already started, we've already been um, touching upon, which is what are the ideological um, controversies with which this rule of law idea gets itself entangled? And we had a brief discussion about how you can quickly move from a negative conception of the rule of law protecting you and your liberties in the spaces where, where law is not to having a polemical opposition to the welfare state and anything where legislation or the will of this, of the parliament is used to appropriate your private property through tax and redistribute it. Like all of those things going on there, you have controversies, right? But on the conflations, this, this really started to be something I needed to think about because I teach public law subjects as well as work theoretically in my, in my own time um, in, when I'm wearing that particular, <laughs> sometimes not really in very enough time at all. But um, I teach administrative law, um, which means that I teach the law regulating the um, Legal, re legal regulation of government power, but we're very close cousins with constitutional law. And constitutional law, meaning the, the meta rule of law framework that frames how governments govern, namely through the permissions under constitutions to legislate in particular ways to do particular things. And other constraints put on the executive branch and the judicial branch in accordance with those constitutional demands. Now, constitutionalism is often, I find in the literature, a placeholder for the rule of law or vice versa. So what, the, what constitutionalism really is, though, is a way of doing the rule of law. And probably the main way of doing the rule of law is to say we will have a constitution which will subject all government power and activity to law. That will be the constitutional demand. So you'll find that in constitutional conversations, you can almost replace rule of law and constitutionalism for each other repeatedly. Like the ideas are about law-based political order, right. right? 
and getting at what that means. But then we also have other conflations like the separation of powers, which is a particular institutional configuration associated with constitutionalism. That equals the rule of law. So rule of law equals having an independent judiciary. Rule of law equals a parliament that invests power in the executive branch or something like that. Once again, I didn't want to suggest anyone's right or wrong about that. I just want people to notice it so that we can work out whether we're really talking about the same idea. Is the idea of the rule of law exhausted in a particular configuration of constitutional relationships between three particular branches? I would say, of course it's not, (laughs) because we've got to, what about those places that, you know, are not necessarily covered easily by those three branches, like the epoch of privatisation that we live in, for instance, where a lot of the work of government is done by private actors, loosely, I guess, instructed by the executive branch, but there's lots of ways to say that the classic separation of powers model is not quite enough for us to get to the bottom of whether we have mutual subordination of officials and subjects in an order and whether the us is being fully embraced and um, taken care of or we can um, make answerable to political power by an idea like the separation of powers. So it's just about pointing out to readers that ideas very quickly become placeholders for each other in rule of law talk and that perhaps the place where that happens in the greatest possible way is in discussions of constitutions and constitutionalism. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I had uh, Dr. Diva Woodley on uh, to talk about social movements, and she uh, it was one of my favorite moments. She complained about the concept of human nature because what it was is just a stand-in for things that people just didn't think they could change. You know, it's just like, it's it's like human nature became all these kind of weird things. And it's like, that's not really human nature. That's just something you just don't want to deal with. Like, <laughs> but, but this is something exactly yeah. like in, in my trade um, in legal philosophy, like there's these longstanding debates about the connections between law and morality, right? right? And a thinker who I've done a lot of work on, Lon Fuller, I think one of the most important interjections he ever gave to his opponents who were philosophers of legal positivism is what exactly do you try, what exactly are you wanting to exclude when you're excluding morality from law? I think like what on earth is in your morality basket? <laughs> because it's like kind of everything else, it's like everything yeah. else that is not law. But that's then that's not a very helpful way to discuss a distinction when one side of it has such undefined content. Right. Like it seems to include everything else, right? So it's like you know, the stuff that you that it's complicated to get your head around or that you don't want to talk about, you you put it under that label and you don't differentiate further and you say that, you know, law and morality must be necessarily separable in order to, you know, meet these political ideas or allow certainty or whatever it might be, whatever the argument is. But when you look at the terms, you realise, hang on, only one side of this, this dichotomy has been given any context. Yeah, yeah. So what, you know, what are you trying to throw with human nature? Like, what are you throwing in that basket? Yes. What are you presupposing about people? Like, is this, you know, pre-psychology yes. or, or pre-antibiotics? Yeah. <laughs> what are you presupposing when you, when you put things in the human nature basket? And then again, yeah. it's just, for me personally, like, 
one of the ways that, that helped me to write this book is that I, I think I wrote something that I needed, yeah, yeah. you know, as in like, I wish I'd been taught this. I wish I'd been given this. I certainly know as a teacher, I teach in the way I wish I was taught um, in the sense that I really would have been a great idea if we could have put these building blocks in more carefully and keep reiterating them over and over again as we branch off into the upper branches of the tree. And so it's about doing that noticing that matters yeah. here. And the entanglement is about that, which is, you know. Yeah. A way of saying nothing is innocent, nothing is innocent. Yes. Like there's no use of the term rule of law that's not saddled with something. Chances are greater than less that the author's not going to tell you what they need, what you, <laughs> what you need to yeah. know to read this because they're picking up a conversation at the stage of development from where they last let off, let, left off, excuse me, and they usually presuppose their audience and so forth. But let's just start noticing where our protagonist is popping up in association with what or whom and what's really going on there. So I'm, I'm delighted that you found that useful yes. um, because it also kind of shows that the, the grand ambition of philosophy or particularly analytic philosophy to like isolate concepts and take them, you know, deal with them on their own terms it's very hard <laughs> and it's very, very hard. It's very, very hard with working ideas like this that are out there doing their work in the world and being given content in everyday usage and practice, right? And no one's right or wrong about what their exact content needs to be. As we've been discussing, it's going to be contextually situated. It's going to be historically situated. But by the same token, we can't collapse into a complete relativism in which we, it's up for grabs. And that I'm also strong about, which is that we need the context, historical, argumentative, sociological, whatever those contexts are, but this still is an idea that's got a core to it yeah. and you can't just reinvent it completely. Yes. It's got a spirit, we might say, that is concerned with um, the relations between government and the governed in political order. Yeah, if we're and you know that's the spirit. Yes, uh, yeah. Even as we we rethink this, like we obviously like you've talked a lot about detention and like it's not that we want to get rid of habeas corpus, right? Like that's like that's a very good thing, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> that's that's really good. So, um, but with that said, I, I and can I just say on that? Can I just yeah. say on that because that is it's sort of. It, it pairs with what I was saying before about, you know, what's going on in that magistrate's hearing when, you know, you were detained for being drunk and disorderly on Saturday night. Um, that's habeas corpus. Yes, right. In an everyday operation. No. Deliver up the body and tell me by what authority you detain them. Yes. So that is like one of the great ideas of the rule of law tradition. It's one of the great manifest, I should put it differently, it is one of the great manifestations of the yes, idea. Yes, that the, the official has to answer to to the law. Um, but yeah. even as you were talking there about uh, revisiting or revising the the rule of law, um, uh, you you have that coda, the provocation from indigenous thought. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting to me, yeah. I, I just want to throw this out because I'm currently. I, I try to read too many books at once, so I need to finish this one, but I'm partway through um, uh, Simone Weil's uh, The Need for Roots. 
And okay. in, in that one, uh, she talks about a, a need for a new type of political order that, uh, and it's, she starts with attacking the idea of human rights, which at first, you know, everyone goes, ah, but she says human rights actually come from our obligations to each other, that obligations are fundamental. And that's, uh, that thought and how that would play out. I mean, that is, that is not my life project, and that is definitely like multiple people's life projects. But it's an interesting idea, and it really resonated. Absolutely, it resonated with me talking about you. You talked about the law that instead of being a negative encroachment that keeps people from hurting each other or whatever, you know, stops tyranny. Instead, it's the the rule of law tradition um, that has uh, it is inside us and in the land. And, uh, and that idea it has, it's almost completely flipped and it is, it is positive. What, you know, kind of, and I want to be, you know, considerate of your time here, but, uh, as we wrap up, what, what would that even begin to look like? This is, I'm, I'm really glad we're wrapping up with, with this. It's several stages of an answer starting with that Simone Weil point about obligations to each other. It's, she's bringing the people back in. It's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and therefore um, reimagining, redescribing, whichever one you might want to work out, we have to think about what a political order looks like, whether people are brought back in. I would like to think we have the, the basis for such an order already within our inheritances. Mm. It's just that those inheritances might have gone, this is the entanglements point, right, might have gone in particular directions over time that have lost way from that. And you'll notice in the, in the book that I um, often recruit the thought of Judith Schlar, who I think fundamentally was concerned with um, personhood in political order and laid the blame for a loss of line of vision towards that at the feet of legal theorists' handling of, of the idea. Um, so that's, that's an aside. Now, I ended this work, I should add here, like I was under like penalty of, of um, threat of penalty with word count here. This this had to be a short study, right? <laughs> so I thought, how can I end this in a way that doesn't very very importantly? I didn't want to wrap it all up. You know, here's the conclusion. You know, ladies and gentlemen, and everybody else, this is what you just learned, and from doing this, I didn't want to do that. I decided to end with the coda, the provocation from indigenous thought. Because although I comported myself primarily in this work as a narrator, as, you know, your lonely planet guide to theoretical engagement with the rule of law, and it wasn't all my work, certainly my work in designing the journey, the trip you're on, you know, designing how you, you know, you took that particular trip, and certainly quite a lot of my work in those more provocative last sections. But... As its narrator, I still had to accept that I communicate or engage with the idea of the rule of law from a particular situated perspective, right? I'm female, I'm white, I'm Australian. (laughs) There's three elements there. And that given that I was asked to write this, so I was asked to write this with, you know, (laughs) for better or for worse, um, the the editorial committee of the Philosophy Law series of the Cambridge Elements asked me to do this, right? So they they expected certain things of what I might bring to it. And I decided to own that very consciously and to say that when I think about the rule of law, I can't just think about it in abstraction. I have to think about it in relation to my own polity and its conduct. But I live in a polity, which is a settler state polity. You know, this is, and the inheritance of English empire 
um, runs to this moment in the relations between um, settler state and Indigenous persons in my country, and it is the most unsettled and unresolved of relationships. So thinking about that, as I've had to do a lot um, as a citizen and as a scholar in, in the last years, and taking responsibility for my place within a legal system that operates this way, and so often to the disadvantage of its Indigenous persons, I feel very serious about custodianship for my own law, for mm. my own legal system. And I'm aware that my own legal system um, exists alongside another for which Indigenous persons have um, custodianship. So that provocation was a way both of situating the place I come from in, in, that in, 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 in writing this particular book, but also as a way of exposing that we're working with an idea, the rule of law, which is very English. Mm. And it's a very English idea with very English presuppositions about what you want from political order, which are a product of that country's own history. But maybe not everybody thinks contract is king, <laughs> or maybe not everybody um, thinks that law, you are free in the space where the law is not, right? And as a custodian for law within my polity, the question I thought that needed to be posed is are we working with the right idea when we use the idea of the rule of law in association with the projects of reconstituting our polity that are needed mm. insofar that one example being um, recent and completely founded claims of Indigenous persons in Australia to a voice to the Australian Parliament that is that is in the Constitution, a voice to that enables a constitutionally guaranteed um, consultation and participation in the political order yeah. as the first peoples of this country, right? My thought was, well, what idea of the rule of law are we going to need to work with to have that make that project work? Because if we blindly do what we normally do in this country, which is to reach for A.V. Dicey's very English ideas or to pluck the vignette from Hayek or from somewhere else without thinking about its own political agendas and its own political and cultural and historical context, then we can mess this up, right? We can mess this up. So what? So it's about, it really is a lovely way to tie our conversation, all the elements of it together, because it demands that we think about what rule of law, what idea of the rule of law do we want? What idea of the rule of law do we need to pursue a project of mutual coexistence and respect for each other's legal orders? But nonetheless, sharing a polity that we can all say that's our, we are the us, you know, we are the us together yeah. within this polity. And it became a way of ending the work by showing how what you think about the idea will set the directions not only of thought but of action and of possibility. So that's why I ended it the way that I did and I hope I wrote it in a manner that is generalisable enough, like it's not about Australia, for example, it's about this phenomenon of the settler state polity. But it ends up being a phenomenon that must be part of the rule of law, any conversations about the rule of law, once we remember that we are dealing here, at least in its institutional expressions, with a very English inheritance. And it goes alongside 
the development and consolidation of, an, of a colonial empire. So how can it be that we cannot talk about the rule of law in conjunction with these um, difficulties and um, projects and promise of, um, of new forms of political order in, in the settler states of, of English colonial empire? So that was the provocation. And I, and I also, above all, PJ, wanted to remind readers that this is all we're dealing here with imagination, right? This was always political theory is a work of imagination, observing the problems of human coexistence and figuring out what you've got to do to do something about them, to have obligations to each other that can frame a political order that is worth living in for all, right? And so someone had to come up with these ideas. And my provocation or note of encouragement is that I hope I have written something that arms those who need to imagine their way into new possibilities with the freedom of thought and the awareness of the traps and awareness of just the baggage and so forth that comes with engaging with this idea, but cutting through that so that you can get on with the reimagining mm. because it's not going away and nor should it. Law-based political order that has a fundamental interest in power being able to be anticipated mm. in its modes, effects and so forth, when's that not going to be important to the human condition, yeah. right? So the idea is not going away and I don't want it to go away. And I don't want our conversations to go about it to go away. I want them to become more aware, more duly political and legal, and more imaginative. I can't think of a, a better way to end this. Thank you so much, Dr. Rundle. It's been an absolute pleasure and a joy to talk to you today. I've really, really enjoyed the opportunity. Thank you, PJ. Great questions. Lovely conversation.